This is Rick Lee James, and the music you are hearing is from my new album, Thunder. The title track, Thunder, is a never-before-released song by the late Rich Mullins. There are also 12 other tracks made up of original music, hymns, and readings to guide the listener on a journey. You can buy Thunder today on clear vinyl and CD, or stream it on Spotify, Apple Music, and almost every other music streaming service. Thunder, hear it today at rickleyjames.com. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I'd like to host my own podcast? Well, guess what? You can go to podbean.com slash voices and get everything you need to create, manage, and promote your podcast. I use Podbean every week for voices in my head. There's easy uploading and publishing tools, stunning templates, custom domains, social and promotional tools, an embeddable podcast player, monetization tools, and more. It is your all-in-one podcasting solution. With Podbean, you can create professional podcasts in minutes without any programming knowledge. Best of all, everything is mobile-ready right from the start. So go to podbean.com slash voices. And when you sign up, use the code VOICES and you'll get a sizable discount. Podbean, for your home podcasting. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, a songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is where I discuss music, movies, books, pop culture, theology, and more with friends, colleagues, and sometimes just by myself. Now make sure to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving me a review on iTunes or by tweeting at me at Rick Lee James on Twitter. And please join my mailing list at rickleejames.com where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. And by the way, in case you're interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account at Mr. Rogers Say, where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the voices in my head. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so glad that you are here with us again this week for what's going to be a wonderful conversation. My guest this week is Dan Koch. Dan is the host of the popular podcast, You Have Permission, which deals with theology, science, prayer, psychology, and related topics. His listeners range from moderate evangelicals to progressive liberal Christians, with, few, with a few non-religious folks sprinkled in. Well, recently Dan conducted 20 interviews around the topic of end times theology and its relationship to mental health issues as part of his doctoral dissertation in psychology. He has turned those 20 conversations into a four-part, highly produced series currently airing now on the You Have Permission podcast feed. The stories include self-proclaimed prophetesses, doomsday prepping, praying the rapture would keep a young man from having to live out a gay lifestyle, and more. Dan also deals with topics on his show like universal, universal salvation, Trump and evangelicals, his own story of anxiety and control versus awe and wonder, 
Old Testament violence, purity culture, and LGBT affirmation. Well, Dan is here today for a visit, and I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Dan Koch, welcome to Voices in My Head. Thank you so much. I am uh, happy and a little bit wary of being yet another one of those voices in people's head. <laughs> No need to be wary whatsoever on this end. I, I have really been enjoying your podcast over the last few weeks and uh, discovering many different guests that you've had that uh, I haven't had a chance to hear before your show. So it's been fun to, to kind of be able to listen in on some of those conversations. But before we get too far into what you do on the podcast tonight, I know you're a new father and you have the unique perspective of being a father really starting right around the time of this pandemic that we find yeah. ourselves in. How is life as a new father in these times? Yeah, I mean, I think he was 10 days old when we, when our family chose to go on lockdown, which was about a week before Washington State basically did that for us. Um, so he is very much a pandemic baby, if, if that's going to be a thing. Mm. Um, you know, honestly, it's it's not been bad. I mean, thankfully, he hasn't had any major health complications where we had to be at the hospital or anything like that, that would have been, I'm sure, um, very scary. Yeah. But since he's been pretty healthy, it has honestly been kind of the best possible time to go into lockdown. I mean, we've we've basically gotten to spend just unlimited time with him. Hmm. And, um, you know, like, uh, you have kids yourself, right? I, we have one, yes. Yes, and so you know that people who come visit you when you have a new baby they really want to be helpful, but oftentimes mm -hmm. they end up kind of draining you mm -hmm. uh, even more so with your lack of sleep and all that. So we've been able to sort of tactfully avoid all of that and just spend time with our little buddy. So it honestly, I don't have anything to complain about. There, there are de definitely loved ones that we wish he had been able to spend more time with thus yeah. far. And that looks like it's finally going to be opening up a bit uh, where we live. So. But it's, oh, I really have no complaints. It's been incredible. Well, and I'm sure that it must be difficult, but in some ways, in the times that we live in, uh, things like using our phones to be able to, you know, be able to video each other oh, yeah. kind of live, I'm sure that yes. helps a little bit. Uh, but still, I'm sure that's hard on grandparents and other family members and things like yeah, I that. I think the grandparents are having it wor the worst. You know, both my wife and I's parents are all still with us, and you know, they basically barely get to see him. Mine are in California, and neither of them have even met him yet. Oh, so wow. uh, that's that's a bummer. Um, yeah. And her parents get to mostly see him from a distance. But I think we're going to be incorporating them into the circle here in the next uh, couple weeks as things open up a bit in Washington. Well, good. And and it, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to have a little bit of a break, too. I remember those days back as, as a new parent, and it's it's just a whole new... Uh, a whole new way of, of life and in a, in a sense you guys are learning two kind of new ways of life all at the same time so yeah, it's, true. it's, yeah, it's just are. really yeah it's, it'll be interesting to see what the coming days are like but uh, but congratulations above all um, and I know that you've uh, had a just from listening to some of your past shows uh, I was just listening to the Carry the Fire podcast that you were a guest on and uh, you were saying that you had you and your wife had been through four miscarriages and I my wife and I also had, had been through four, and I know how difficult that is, but we're rejoicing with you uh, at the birth of your new baby. It's it's always a, a wonderful thing when we can celebrate life like that. Yeah, it's. I don't know if you guys feel the same way about this, but in one sense you're tempted to 
let the you know the healthy born baby erase the miscarriages and all of mm. that pain and suffering but um i try not to do that because i know that you know that not everybody gets one like yeah. you and i have and uh also it doesn't really negate the previous story um i think that that's a there's a triumphalist tendency mm. uh, especially in american culture and american christianity but i think just as a subset of american culture we, we tend to be very triumphalist yeah. and um and i try not to be that way although in the moment i mean i gotta admit i'm i'm thrilled i'm just it, you know most of my instagram posts are just him being adorable <laughs> yeah uh, but you know interpersonally i hope to not i hope to to retain that story of of you know the 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 most real suffering i've probably ever yeah. experienced yeah and, and it's important to to kind of maintain that because we uh we we do we grieve them just you know a lot of people don't want to talk about things like miscarriages because i don't know if they don't know how to talk about it or maybe it's because they aren't as visible uh as, of a hurt but i think that we suffer just as much uh with that as any other loss that we go through and uh, I, I don't know exactly, I, you know what, I'll be honest, I don't know at all what the afterlife looks like, but I right. hope that one day it means uh, that, I'll, that I'll get to hold them and, you know, in some sort of reunion and whatever that means. I'm, I'm thankful they're in the everlasting arms until then, uh, and, and we leave it at that and, and, and trust in that for sure. But yeah. anyway... Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to to some other things too. And thank you for sharing. You don't want to do an hour on miscarriages. <laughs> <laughs> we we could for sure. We could we pull but, back and, through my old uh, notes. <laughs> well, let let's go on to to a happier topic uh, than that for sure. Uh, although I'm sure that would be a great help to many people if we did do that. <laughs> we we might have to think about that in the future. But, yeah. you know, as we get started today, give us the elevator pitch for your podcast. You have permission because I know that you did another podcast before that that was also very popular and it kind of, I think, led into this one. But the, it's I, it's intriguing, the whole premise of this show, and I really love it. I wonder if you could just give us your elevator pitch for it for those listening that might not have heard. Yeah, so it's basically a show for people uh, for whom they, in some sense, have felt like they have had these really good questions, questions about God, you know, uh, faith in faith in science, prayer, you know, whatever, all the kind of the, really the, the big questions that people tend to ask um, or, you know, issues with the particular version of Christianity that they've been presented with. And if those good answers, good questions have been met with bad answers or worse uh, with something like, actually, we don't ask those questions here. Mm then this is a show for you basically mm -hmm. and and so i have a i have my own kind of angle but but everything's on the table it's you know i i i myself am what people would call a theologically progressive or liberal christian mm -hmm. uh, but very much an active person of faith and um i am pursuing a psychology doctorate as you mentioned in the intro so there's a, a good bit of psychology uh, psychology is, I guess, more represented than other lenses, you know, that, that you might imagine. So, for instance, you know, I talk about the Bible sometimes, but I talk a lot more about psychology just because hmm. that's my interest. 
Well, and I love the I love the welcome that you give to your guests as well too, knowing that they don't all have to be from the same perspective. Right. And uh, and that's that's something that I think is is hard to find if we're not careful. We create these uh, these bubbles or just echo chambers of people that sound just like us. And the way that you I think fearlessly have these conversations is so wonderful because you know you're not going to have. Uh, for instance, a cable news type pundit that's going to yell at you, uh, you know, with terrible things if you disagree. But you're actually giving a sounding board for people with different ideas to be able to come on and in a safe place have conversations that maybe they're not able to have anywhere else. And that, that's what I really appreciated about your show. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Fred Rogers and, uh, and the yeah, work that he did that, with uh, the neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have that yeah. show, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, uh, and I feel like the kind of welcome that he gave, you know, in his life on that show, I, I feel a very uh, similar vibe to the welcome that you give to people when they come on your show. There's a very neighborly feel about it, and I so appreciate that. I think it's hard to find that these days. So I, I well, that's wanna... about the nicest thing anyone said to me in a long time. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, um, it's it's true. I think I can but... draw a line there. I think between the previous podcast um, that I did right before this, which was called Depolarize. And that one dealt with more politics, but mm. also psychology, like the psychology of tribalism and mm-hmm. and really uh, increased polarization in, you know, in America and probably in the West more broadly. I don't I don't really know for sure. Um, but that work really turned me into a sort of sociopolitical moderate, hmm. uh, not in the sense of like, well, uh, I'd like to avoid conflict. So let's just compromise. Mm-hmm. More in the sense of like, oh, actually, the world is very complicated. It is very difficult to know something for sure on a complicated issue. So most of the time, all things being equal, better to just get multiple voices in here and find what they're each seeing that the other person is not seeing mm-hmm. and go from there. As opposed to, I know what's right. This is the ideology that I have committed myself to and because I think that sometimes – uh, progressive and conservative religious spaces both can end up doing kind of the same thing where they just stick to their ideology. It becomes its own kind of fundamentalism. And then, yeah, it becomes an echo chamber. W- once you've made that step, well, then nobody is going to listen that isn't already in agreement with you. So it's just preaching to the choir. And as we've seen with social media and, and so many other um, features of our modern life, once I'm in an echo chamber, all these algorithms of these companies, their incentive is to keep me there. And I actually just get more and more entrenched into my own tribe, my own sort of echo chamber to -hmm. where I can't even understand the other person. And I just think that's a bad recipe for learning true things in general. So that has influenced the way that I structure and frame this show about faith, where I pretty clearly do have a perspective and it comes Mm -hmm. out. It's it's pretty obvious to listeners that I'm a liberal Christian. Mm -hmm. But... If I let that be the only thing that's welcome at the table, then I have basically violated my own rule number one, which is because then it's no longer helpful. It's not helping mm-hmm. liberals because fellow liberals, because we're just getting entrenched further together. And it's not helping people who disagree with me because they're not ever going to hear it and hear mm-hmm. it the other side. So that's the connection between the two shows. Well, that's great. Well, and I think, you know, to, to put a little religious language to it as well you know and I I think about so many times I've had conversations with people about you know thank God that God did not 
wait uh, until we knew all the answers and we had all everything right before <laughs> there was any revelation whatsoever uh, given to us. And uh, and I think sometimes we miss that because we're so concerned on on being right that we're missing out on relationships that could be there or we're so concerned that another person is not right that we refuse to have those relationships with them in in some ways and i feel like you're you're doing a good work in in trying at least um to have relationship with people and and as you are seeking the answers together and whether or not we have it all figured out yet or not so I really applaud that for sure I I wonder if you could just help our listeners a little bit by telling us some of your own faith story because I know that part of your story is going through uh, a deconstruction of faith and and sort of a new reconstruction of faith as well Um, but I wonder if you could just kind of share your background and, and some of that journey and what it was like for you yeah there's there's a few um there's a few lenses I could tell this story through. I'll choose the uh, the end times lens because that also relates to that recent uh, spate of episodes. Sure. Um, but there are the other lenses that if we have time we could talk about would be sort of like Old Testament violence lens and mm-hmm. the hell and universal salvation lens. But setting those aside for now, basically I uh, I have panic disorder. That's the official DSM diagnosis for it. I've had it off and on since I was a kid, at least since third grade. That's my earliest, you know, concrete memory of panic attacks. And uh, it's currently in remission. You know, don't don't worry. I'm, I'm doing quite well with it right now. And in fact, surprisingly well, given that there's a pandemic going on. Hmm. But uh, in, in sixth grade, I was basically given this literature about Christ's imminent return. This was April of uh, 1996, and I was given a, a little short book that had 96 arguments that Christ would be returning that September. So September mm. of my seventh grade year. And I went into a tailspin. Um, I had to study this again in eighth grade at my evangelical junior high and high school. Uh, and into my 20s even, um, I I'd had kind of deconstructed some of that theology in college, but still did not know that I had panic disorder and was still drinking caffeine, which made it worse. And all these things I didn't understand at the time. And around age 23, I had like this massive meltdown. I was in Los Angeles uh, co-producing a friend's album and I had to leave in the middle of the album and fly to my parents' home and like take two weeks off uh, and decompress and start therapy and uh, start cognitive behavioral training. You know, I just Mm. I had a massive kind of thing. Uh, And that's when I got diagnosed with panic disorder and and things uh, began to slowly improve. That was uh, 13 years ago. Hmm. So that is that is one angle of it. And um, what you could say I had to deconstruct there was this particular view of the end times, which was basically the zeitgeist. It was completely in the water in the type of sort of moderate evangelicalism that I was raised in. I was not raised a fundamentalist. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people were and have had very different sort of stories since then. I wasn't. I was very uh, just a mainstream, moderate evangelical home. Uh, my dad is a therapist, you know. We ha- so we were kind of science adjacent and all that. Hmm. But I had this underlying condition already, and the end time stuff was just perfect, you know, read worst possible uh, hmm. thing for that panic disorder. And so uh, I've had to recon. You know, that was one of the many things that that made me sort of rethink what 
kind of a theology I have. What do I think the Bible is? Do I think that the books of Daniel, Matthew, and Revelation, and little parts of Isaiah and Ezekiel, whatever, are actually pointing toward a map of the end times that one can decode sort of mathematically and linguistically? Do I think that's what's going on? If I don't think that's what's going on, then what does that say about the rest of the Bible? You know, it, and uh, one of the things that, uh, an interesting, if I'll, I'll say one last thing, one interesting angle of this recent research I've been doing on all that stuff is that a certain view of the Bible is assumed in these prophecy circles. If you think about it, if anything in the Bible with prophecy related is mathematical, seven years, however many weeks, whatever, if any of that's math, then it has to be inerrant and, and, and perfect. It has to basically be dictated. It's a dictation model of inspiration. I don't know how deep into these uh, terms you go on your show, but the idea that like the Holy Spirit basically gives the writer exactly the words because math doesn't work on a, on probably, you know, prophecy wouldn't work on probabilistic math. It's, it's math, right? It's right. It's <laughs> seven years. Exactly. Right. And so, right. uh, only recently have I sort of put those together that, oh, there was this view of the Bible that was innately connected to that view of prophecy. Of course, nobody had spelled that out for me mm. when I was 13. Right. Yeah. But it was, it was assumed it was part of the deal. So anyway, that's, that's one angle of that story. Sure. All right. And, and you know, I'm I'm fascinated by that because I'm I, I've always been in in an evangelical church too. Although I don't know that it's quite the same as a lot of the other ones out there. Uh, I, I'm in the Church of the Nazarene, which is is very conservative on some things, a little more progressive on some others. Right. Um, but I, I w I'm thankful that my father, who was my pastor growing up, um, he always taught that that particular view of end times eschatology was a distortion of scripture and that there was no there was not a rapture like that that that's totally things that are taken out of context so it's interesting to me um just from my perspective i remember from being pretty young on dad telling me if if i went to camp or something and somebody showed a movie or because i'm pretty sure a thief in the night came up at some point you know oh, yeah. <laughs> something oh, yeah. like that and oh, yeah. i just it just made no sense to me and and i had a, a, a thankfully a, a pastor father who said don't listen to any of that it's nonsense you know <laughs> but um what but, a blessing but, man yeah, yeah it really it really has been because what i'm discovering is it really scarred a lot of people um and, and including yourself is what i'm hearing and so i've as i've been listening through some of your uh episodes then when you've been studying this and and the good work you've done um i i'm saddened at how deeply it really has hurt people in in so many ways and, and scarred them to the point that they want to leave faith altogether um, because maybe when they do find out this is not uh, what they had thought it was you no know, now I can't believe anything you know <laughs> like yeah, that right um, well and a lot of that depends on in what ways people have been hurt by who you know and all mm -hmm. that stuff so a lot of that ends up being anecdotal and autobiographical true and so you got we have to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush but there are also like much worse versions of this than mm -hmm. the story I just told, right? I mean, yeah. I happen to be susceptible to it with my own uh, anxiety disorder, but there are, you know, there's there's legitimate kinds of abuse and in fraud and you know uh, all kinds of stories. Some some of which made their way into those episodes, but of course, countless others that didn't. Yeah. 
Well, well, tell us, if you don't mind, a little bit about your story of, of deconstruction, of kind of where you had to go through all this and, and kind of make a new path for yourself uh, in, in your faith. Yeah. So I think for me, um, it mostly ended up being a, a question of inerrancy of Scripture. So while all of that stuff was going on, uh, so let's say I, I had kind of deconstructed some of the end times views around 18 freshman in college and then 23 five years later is when i had the big sort of meltdown and uh stopped drinking caffeine and recognized i was a person who had anxiety so Mm. in those five years though in that period i was also thinking about other things um and i've always been sort of theologically engaged i was a philosophy major in college so you know you get that what kind of person self-selects into philosophy i'm that kind of a person (laughs) I mean, it was an easy way to get into the school that I went to. You know, it was a hard school to get into for other things, and philosophy was easy. But I also didn't change my major after considering it. So I I did end up, you know, choosing it. And um, so the big one for me, I think, uh, starting around 1920 was the portrayals of God in the Old Testament, Um, Mm. specifically around sort of the, the big one, which is the Canaanite conquest. Some people call it genocide. Yeah. Um, it depends on, you know, whether or not it's a conquest or genocide kind of depends on if you think it, hap- it happened or not. And there are both textual and extra textual reasons for thinking it might not have happened. Um, you know, that, that actually they didn't kill everybody uh, the way that they were commanded to. But for me, the the problematic thing is is that they were commanded to, right? So the implication is that God would ever want God's people to do something like that. That there would ever be any reason to basically ethnically cleanse a geographical area. Yeah. And I struggled with that one for a long time. And eventually uh, I had to land on sort of, you know, like like consider one of those four views type books. So I read one of those. And then the basically the far left view, which is God uh, did not ever want this. This if there's something human in scripture that is non-divine. Uh, this is we're looking at it. This is mm. the kind of thing that would be human. Uh, this is the kind of thing that people thought back then. We have evidence of other nations, you know, talking like this about their war uh, and conquest and all that stuff with the gods on their side and stuff. And this reads a lot like that stuff. And it and that is really nothing like Jesus. So mm. we should conclude that this is human. That this is that uh, the text is not inerrant. The text may still be infallible in the sense of it has everything we need for salvation, which I would hold today. But it's not inerrant because this is presenting a God that is just cannot be the same God as the God of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's that was the big, the first big one for me on my deconstruction mm. journey. Then that opened me up to okay. So then, what else changes if that's the case? Hmm. All right. Uh, it's interesting when you talk about that too, because I've developed a friendship with uh, with our local rabbi, uh, literally almost around the corner from my house here in Ohio, yeah. where I live, and uh, it's been fascinating to talk with him about some things too. Uh, I, I think a lot of this that that we read from Old Testament passages, like you said, we could be spared a lot of pain if we would consult some Jewish sources too on some matters, because he's 100%. been. It's been very interesting to talk to him about things like 
Um, well, here's another big issue, not just like end time stuff or the things that you just mentioned about genocide, but even from the standpoint of like creationism and a right. Jewish person. And he told me, he's like, you guys don't really believe that happened like literally in the way it happened, right? <laughs> and it's like my local Jewish rabbi is telling me, he's like, well, you know, a lot of churches, they, they do teach I, that. And he's like, right, oh, no, yeah. no no Jewish person would tell you that. We, we You have to understand why it was written. It's a story to, you know, it's poetry. It's there to teach us about, uh, you know, who God is in our world. But we, none of us take it literally, you know, things like that. And right. it, it's, it's interesting because we also talked about uh, before the ways that, that Scripture was written in such a way that, you have different authors who are kind of in an argument with each other you know, about different different things that they're talking about. And you kind of see them wrestling with what other parts of Scripture say. And it's very hard to reconcile that if, if you've not been taught that uh, in the church, that Scripture, again, getting back to if this is what it might mean by calling it the living word um, and, and something that uh, is, is active, then there's this wrestling that's going on with different places in scripture within itself even yeah. and it's really hard to reconcile that with well everything's there is exactly the way it needs to be and uh and i think we have a hard time kind of breaking out of that sometimes for sure but 100 percent um one little note on the jewish thing uh an old the old testament scholar who had the most effect on me over the last 10 years or so is is pete ends long mm. before he started his bible for normal people podcast sure i, I was reading his books and and he was basically trained under John Levinson and other uh, Jewish Old Testament scholars at Harvard. And it, and Jewish sources and Jewish ways of understanding their own text figure really strongly in the way that he reads it as a Christian. And mm. uh, that just that clicked so many things in place for me when I was able to approach it that way, of course, imperfectly. Um, but uh, to your to your second point there about. Um, uh, the Bible disagreeing with itself or, or whatever authors of the Bible sort of having an internal conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, the most compelling argument and what sort of clinched it for me was Christian Smith, who's actually a sociologist. He's not a biblical scholar, um, but he, he studies, he's a sociologist of religion and he uh, resurrected an argument. One of his advisors had made back in the seventies and said, to my knowledge, nobody has answered this argument. So I'm going to reframe it here in my own book. The book hmm. was called The Bible Made Impossible. Oh, and it, yeah. And it basically said this. Look, he said, here is a view of the Bible that many Christians are raised with. And I would say I was raised with this view implicitly taught to me. The Bible is a puzzle. And if we arrange the pieces correctly, we will see the whole picture. That's hmm. that's the view that um, everything does actually fit. It is that we are incapable of seeing whether or not it fits, but it does fit. And and Smith basically said, that seems wrong because you have all these Christians, people of goodwill, people who genuinely and obviously love the Lord, and they can never agree on where the pieces go. So maybe the much simpler explanation is that the Bible is not a puzzle where the pieces all fit. And hmm. that lines up much better with a Jewish understanding of the text that, yeah. no, there are there are internal disagreements. So the the technical term for this is univocality or multivocality. Does the Bible speak with one voice or does or do different authors of the Bible sometimes within their own books 
speak with differing voices and the, and the truth is found in the conversation between the voices. And I, once I read that, I was like, oh, that explains the data so much better. The Bible, uh, I believe, is multivocal, not univocal. Uh, and that is both scary because it undermines a lot of what many of us have been taught and the mm-hmm. kind of certain sure foundation we have. But it's also really exciting because it opens up all kinds of opportunities for different Christian experience to speak to us and to give us a much wider uh, and expansive view of God and God's love for everyone. Hmm. So, so I wonder, and this may be something you you would have to think about a little bit longer before you answer, and that's okay. We can move on if it is. But I'm wondering what you would think if, if we dropped uh, somebody like the Apostle Paul into our modern context right now. <laughs> And he's still alive, and some of the the passages that he's written. Um, what do you think the Apostle Paul would say? And and this is this is an example that comes up a lot because I live near a big Baptist university. So and they they specifically say you know you women can't teach men uh, in the theology department, things like that. Do you ever sometimes wonder like what if we dropped Paul into a modern context and 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 then had to think through like okay so what would Paul say to us in this situation like um, you know you guys are way off base or or you know would he would he take a different perspective than what we thought I. I just wonder have you ever done any sort of mental exercises like that because i feel like there are there are many things that the bible doesn't even address um you know i often will say things like um uh, like you know i affirm everything jesus said about homosexuality because he doesn't say anything about it you know <laughs> things like yeah, that yeah, um, yeah. you know things like that um and, but it's true you know we, we're oftentimes left to to wonder like okay well if everything's in the bible what what do they speak to us on this issue and that's kind of a long and rambling question i just it's more of i wonder if you've ever kind of done any thought exercises like that uh, i have yeah i have thought about this i mean before answering Paul, let, let's let's answer something that's a little bit easier to get our minds around. Mm-hmm. Uh, take someone's great grandparents and drop them in a city today where they see black and white couples walking around. Hmm. Uh, almost everybody, if we trust <laughs> the survey data from 80 years ago or whatever, would have been very uncomfortable with that. They would have thought that we were doing something wrong, sinful, basically. Hmm. They still had an image that races should not mix. Now, of course, you could go somewhere else 100 years ago and not find that view. The point just being that uh, our moral views are contextual, at least in, in large part. So if I am a progressive today, that is only really possible to define that in relation to what the norms are today for me. So a progress like Abraham Lincoln was a progressive and wanted the slaves to be freed but did not think that black and white people were equal. Hmm. But he was a progressive for his day. Like he was still a few clicks over from the average person. So when it comes to Paul, I think that if Paul, I mean now we're talking a 2000 year gap. Yeah. I think that Paul would think I think that Paul would say it would be very it'd be fascinating to find this out. I mean, after it took him, I don't know, six months to get his head around where he lived now and he could sort of get his sea legs. I think in some senses he would say we have completely missed the mark. And I Mm. think the number one thing he would point to is money. 
he would be like, wait, you guys went from everyone sharing everything in common in our day to massive multi-million dollar ministries with with shiny buildings. Mm. I think he would think that was very weird. But also, I think we would consider him to be insanely sexist and homophobic <laughs> hmm. by our standards. Yeah. Um, but but I don't think by his standards. You, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I think that Paul was a progressive for his time, some of which today to us would seem incredibly regressive. But that's just how time works hmm. uh, or context. So in so polit- so economically, he would be more progressive than all of us but maybe sexually or in terms of gender. Now, there is an interesting asterisk there with the gender stuff because a lot of New Testament scholars don't believe that he actually wrote the books that contained the most inflammatory stuff about hmm. uh, gender. That is not a, uh, an issue I know a ton about, but enough people I trust have said that, that I uh, I trust that to be a somewhat of a consensus in New Testament studies. Hmm. Fascinating, yeah. That's that's very interesting. I love. Thank you for kind of bringing it up a little bit closer within that hundred year range too. That really thought experiments are my love language, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I figured if anybody had done that, it's you for sure. Um, well, and it is it is fascinating even to think about uh, you know just the world that like our grandparents were born into is not the same world that they die in. You know, like it, it, there's been exactly. more technological yeah. change uh, just in the last hundred years, or maybe 120 years, than there was in the last thousand years. I mean, it's just amazing to think. Uh, it's no wonder that uh, that so often we find ourselves so unsteady in the world. You know, with things just constantly changing, and now with with news cycles and the way that we pay attention to the news and so many people are you know addicted to their favorite cable news channel of choice whatever that might be um i I think our our memories are almost shrinking because you know if we stopped and thought about it i think it's what was it three months ago when we had impeachment hearings um and it seems like it was 25 years ago (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everything like, is moving so fast, yeah. Yeah, we and it's just so hard to take a breath. I think even in in quarantine times, in this time of pandemic, um, even now when things are are in some ways moving so slow, it still feels like it's just speeding by in, in so many ways. So it's it's fascinating to think of uh, another person's perspective, and I think it's it's important to to think in another person's perspective in those ways. Um, it's so hard when the only answer we have is just, well, the Bible says, or you know, to, to kind of have that conversation because that that doesn't even begin to dive deep at all into what the Bible may actually be saying. You well, know? and it's also if you if you say that to dismiss context, then you're actually you you shouldn't do that because even conservative theologians when they talk about you know uh, things like homosexuality, gender, slavery in the Bible, they are constantly putting it in its context. That mm-hmm. that's the whole argument for instance with uh the well the Bible doesn't really promote slavery because in this context here's what kind of slavery there was and it wasn't like this kind of slavery and you know like everybody yeah. does that. Like so you can't just say, well I don't need context, I'm just going to go to the text. It's mm. impossible to understand language from 2000 years ago without cultural context. Furthermore, the people who are uh, who are translating your Bible for you into English can only do so given the context of the time which they are up on 
in all the academic literature, right? So mm. there, there is just no way around it. And unfortunately, uh, American evangelicalism and, and really just American dominant cultural in general, we tend to be pretty anti-historical, pretty ahistorical. We yeah. don't think we have a context. Uh, the way I like to say it is it's the early church, pop forward 2,000 years, and boom, here we are with our Bibles. Nothing yeah. in between. None of that matters. And I think mm. that that's false. It does matter. And we do have a context. Uh, and if we if we ignore it, we ignore it to our own peril or perhaps the peril of people with less cultural power than we have. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, – is that very famous passage from Jeremiah that is, you know, every, we're almost yes. into graduation time. You know, I know the plans I have for yeah. you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you a future. But if you read the whole, even just read the whole chapter, you see, uh, I have these plans for you, but it's not going to happen for you, <laughs> you know, because you're not going to live long enough to be yeah. in the land. You know, it's it's for future generations and people. And it's a really interesting thing. You know, next time you give that graduate that scripture passage, you can just leave a little footnote. But also, even though this plan is for you, it's not going to happen. You know, yeah. <laughs> this plan like should that. be uh, re- read this one to your children because that's what it's really for. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so not it's going to make it. Yeah. Even even things like that are so hard for us sometimes that if we even would just study the one chapter, you know, and try to well, put it in context. So that's a good example of why I find the psychological lens so interesting. So for me in that question, I spent my whole, you know, adult life up until the last few years um, looking at an issue like that, the Jeremiah, you know, out of context quote, in mm-hmm. the context of biblical studies or theology. So the question would be, well, why don't we just read the text or whatever? And now I'm at a point where I'm like, ah, I think maybe the better question is, why do people find this out of context Jeremiah quote? Why is it so sticky to us? Mm. What is it accomplishing that we are we are uninterested in the larger context? Like, what are we getting out of this that is blinding us to the context of that passage? Hmm. That's the question I'm more interested in asking now. And, you know, I don't know how to answer that, but in. In a situation like that, you know, something like it's it's similar to the same whatever the answer is to that is probably the same answer to the reason that people will say God needed another angel when someone dies. Like like there are these platitudes that we have that basically distract us from having to think about um, the precariousness of our own living situation, our own life as people who will die. Um, hmm. And, you know, maybe the has plans for me. To prosper me, whatever. That's maybe less about death, but it's but it's still about um, comfort and security, mm-hmm. right? So, and and faith should be that in a sense. Like faith is is hope. It is it's hope in light of bad circumstances, right? In spite of bad circumstances. Uh, but there's a a time when that can go too far, where we're actually just we're just using scripture to put big blinders over ourselves to actually avoid the world as we mm-hmm. find it. So anyway, that's hmm. a bit of a tangent no, I, there. It's it's fascinating. No, it's very good. And 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 since we're talking about the psychology of it, I I wanted to to talk to you about something before we do run out of time here tonight. I, I understand your wife does have the baby, and you, yes. <laughs> we can't keep you all night. So <laughs> yeah. and and thank you so much to her for for enabling you to do this. I really she's the real really, hero really, today. Definitely, yeah. definitely. <laughs> oh, the mothers are are incredible for sure. My wife is amazing. We we would be lost without her for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, I wanted to ask you about talk the, about the things I don't want to consider because it would. 
throw me into a full-blown panic. What would my life be without my wife? How right. Raise this kid. Jeez. That's exactly. about as bad as uh, thinking about not existing. Okay. I know. Yeah, that's about the worst I could imagine for sure. <laughs> anyway, well, go ahead. I, I would love to just kind of pick your brain maybe from the psychology aspect of it or maybe just as a person. I don't know. You you tell me kind of where it goes. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm every day more baffled and fascinated by white evangelicalism's love for Donald Trump. Uh, and and not to say every single person, but it's there, you know, and, and they're strong supporters in many ways. Um, and and I, I think of that, and I think, like, I can remember growing up, and the church was so incredibly scandalized by Bill Clinton, you know, because he had had an affair, you know, with the Monica Lewinsky. And I, I remember being going to school and and uh, and just really that being the conversation that kids were having. And I, I was in the South, so I was in Tennessee, so that was especially, you know, oh, just his immorality was, that, that's just a bridge too far. No matter what we think of him, we can't abide, you know. And And so here we are years later, and the same people, you know, who were so scandalized by that. We have a person who, you know, we know for a fact he, he used campaign funds to silence uh, multiple affairs, not just one. Um, he's stolen from charities that were supposed to help children with cancer. He, he ran this sham university and robbed so many people. Um, you know, he, he used uh, extortion for his own gain while being president. Um, you know, he insults the military, which also used to be, you know, if you ever insulted a POW, that would be the last straw. Um, you know, the misogynistic used remarks yeah. used to be uh, the kids in cages alone at one time would have been enough or him, you know, bragging about sexual assault. I could go on and on because every day it's a new thing. And I know I don't have to, but I'm wondering, like, what is it psychologically that's there that says, oh, okay, I can completely disconnect this from where I was uh, years ago, you know, I forget how many presidents it was now, four presidents ago <laughs> with Bill Clinton, yeah, all because uh, this time three. my guys, yeah. three, three ago. Um, I, I'm just, I'm just curious about what, what is the psychology that there that says, well, I can excuse this, but I can't excuse that, I guess. What's your take on that? Well, the, the psychological term is motivated reasoning. Uh, under, under that heading, you have things like, um, confirmation bias, which most of us have heard at the, by this mm -hmm. point, if we've been paying attention. Um, uh, another way to talk about it is tribalism. Hmm. So, uh, so one very simple way to think about it is what comes first for most people? Is it their, it, like for, for most of these evangelicals, these white evangelicals, what comes first for them? What is more uh, fundamental to them? Is it their socio-political conservatism or is it their uh, evangelical theological um, commitments. Uh, hmm. And I would say the evidence here points to uh, the claim that the socio-political conservatism is actually more important. It's more central hmm. to how they see themselves and the world. Now, to be, sh to be sure, a lot of that conservatism has been given biblical language, religious language around it, right? Hmm. So that, that muddies the waters. So, for instance, you might think, well, hey, isn't being pro-life a very clearly a religious issue and not a political issue? Well, it is in a sense, but the pro-life pro platform completely disregards, for instance, 
factors that reduce abortions. It ignores Mm. poverty. It ignores, you know, I I would argue that refugee admittance is a a life issue. Mm -hmm. War is a life issue. The death penalty, though it doesn't affect all that many people per year, is a life issue. Uh, often around the exact same principles as abortion and the same sort of ethical principles, right? Like we don't have the right to take a life, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. So, uh, and yet death penalty is a good example. Conservative people like the death penalty. That's been shown time and time again. So what comes first? Is it the conservatism or is it the faith principles? And and you could apply the same thing to people on the left. Uh, mm-hmm. Whatever is true about evangelicals is probably true about me as well. That in some sense, my political... Um, and my socio-political identity comes first before my faith claims. My, the challenge to myself as a Christian is to allow Jesus to critique my socio-political assumptions and, and hmm. tribalism, right? That would be the best case scenario as a Christian. So I think that's that's kind of the most succinct way of looking at it. It's actually hmm. not a very fun answer. <laughs> yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't feel great that that's what it is, but I actually think that we should lower our expectations a little bit and just acknowledge that that's what it is, and then we won't be so surprised. Now, that does have certain consequences for that flavor of Christianity, if you were raised hmm. in it, that uh, actually it's not as powerful as, as we were taught to believe. Maybe a lot of what was going on was not the power of God through our church, but was actually the power of uh, smart people to cloak other things in religious language and activate mm. people's loyalty, you know, or whatever. Of course, that doesn't mean that Christ is not there in any of it. Um, but perhaps the road is more narrow than, mm. than we thought. Maybe when Jesus said the road's narrow, he, he was right. Uh, and in, in this is an instance in which it's right in our time and place. Hmm. Well, thank you. You, you did that so concisely and, <laughs> and so wonderfully. And well, that's a what I've been spending a few years on trying to yeah. understand. So that's what basically Depolarize was started to answer that question. So hmm. I did 75 episodes of that show trying to answer that question. Wow. Wow. That's great. So you've, you've done a lot of thought for sure. That's, I would that's recommend terrific. if people want to read about this, the, the far and away the best thing to read is Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. He gets hmm. into fantastic but very readable psychological detail about this stuff. And, and it's the, the single most impactful book I think I've read as an adult personally all right well that's a great recommendation for sure now now what about you uh do you have any any books on the horizon that that you're planning on releasing nothing currently uh for now the podcast is just the only sort of source of public work um what i what i'm doing these days if i have something that's kind of like a book idea is i'm just doing a podcast series around it Mm -hmm. maybe one of those will end up as a book um but it's the way i am i'm currently better at organizing my thoughts and uh, it's quicker. <laughs> yeah. And I can kind of test it out and see what is re- people are responding to. I, I mean, just this week I'm working on a kind of um, resource for people who are just beginning deconstruction of their faith mm. and don't really know what to expect. And I purchased the domain soyourdeconstructing.com. <laughs> mm. So maybe that'll be a book someday. Or maybe it'll be a yeah. podcast series. Uh, right now I'm just kind of at the very beginning just um, – reaching out to people to help me organize it and see what should be in it. It's the kind of thing I think uh, I wished I had had and a lot of people wish that they had had when they started this kind of journey. So, wow. 
Yeah, there's projects, well, but none of them are books currently. Well, that's still incredibly helpful, though, and I know a lot of people who are going through deconstructing right now, um, are, are, I'm sure that they will find that to be a great resource, because you, you do kind of feel like you're in the middle of the ocean with, with not just without a rudder, without a boat sometimes when you're going through that, for sure. Yeah. And I can remember a place in my own life feeling very lost and, and when I was going through a lot of this, and um, I'm grateful for people like you along the journey that cared enough to be able to share your story and uh, and I thank you for the good work that you are doing with your show right now and, and with your life it, it's it's great to get to hear um, these these good conversations that you're having on your podcast but before we end our time uh, together tonight I listeners might not know this and it's fairly new information to me because I, I knew you from your podcast but I'm discovering what an incredible musician you are as well you're a great guitarist and uh, you even have your own Wikipedia page which I don't know too many people, you know, that can say that. Uh, that's, that's a. Uh, I mean, a lot of people do, yeah. but not not people that you get to talk to that actually have them. Um, and you were on MySpace Records back in the day, which that's I assume true. MySpace Records is not probably as thriving as it was, <laughs> but still, that's defunct. very yes. <laughs> impressive. Yeah. But you've also, if, if you go to dancoke.net, and by the way, it's spelled K-O-C-H, in case yes. people are wondering, uh, dancoke.net, uh, you'll be able to find uh, some of the amazing tracks and the, the success you've had. You've had uh, music on Capital One ads, uh, some McDonald's spots, some Walmart, Disney World, DoorDash, you know. Yep. Uh, all, it's, it's, it's amazing just the, the way that people have used your, your music. Music, so I just wanted to congratulate you on that because, as a musician myself, I know that's a, that in itself is a huge accomplishment. So, a lot of luck, you know, the right combination of skill set and then really good timing with uh, a, a friend that I happened to run into from Portland who had started a company, and so I was able to kind of hitch my wagon to them when they were four employees and now they're 55 employees. And wow, it, so it's been my full time gig for eight and a half years now, and uh. Hmm. Yeah, very very fortunate, um, and it's paying my way through grad school to become a psychologist. So it's wow. it's going to hopefully transition us financially to this next phase of life. Um, I feel very lucky. Uh, some of these ads are very silly. <laughs> others are other others are quite cool, and we're very yeah. cool to be a part of, and and very rewarding. And I I mostly just write with my friends now. And uh, so I, I very much enjoy that. We, we work for a while. We get lunch. We come back and work for a while. And uh, we just hang out. Although not during the pandemic. Now we're having to figure out ways to do it over Zoom, which has also yeah. actually been kind of fun. But yeah, that's my other that's my other life. I don't know who created the Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> I will say this. Uh, one year I did, I had friends do stand-up comedy for my birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my friends, half of his stand-up set was just reading off of my wikipedia page to laughter <laughs> from my friends that was so that at least it served one purpose uh, i don't think there's anything about the podcast or anything it's just all the as far as i remember it's just all the sherwood stuff my old band yeah there might just have been a, a brief blurb about it but yeah there was stuff on on there a, a lot about your band so fascinating you're just a, you're kind of a renaissance person so many different things that you do and, and that's wonderful i'm easily bored yeah <laughs> well dan i i want to thank you again for the good work that you are doing and i hope that you'll continue to do it for many years to come and uh and i just uh i love the podcast and i love the heart that you have behind it i really do feel like you are creating 
uh, a place of welcome for people that often may not have a place of welcome to talk about some very difficult things at times. So I want to applaud you for that. And I also want to say thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. I, I, I try to make it that kind of a place, so it means a lot to hear you say that uh, for, for you at least it's it's working. Thank you for joining me here this week on Voices in My Head. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com where you can find out more about me, get my music on vinyl and CD, follow my blog, and even schedule me for a concert or a speaking engagement. Better yet, even a book signing in your neighborhood. You can find all that and more at rickleejames.com. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast will be online. And now, for the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you, and thank you for listening to Voices in My Head.